So on behalf of the Christian Study Center of Gainesville, allow me to welcome each of you to this virtual event. My name is Michael Sacassis, and I'm the Associate Director of the Study Center. Uh, while I suspect that many of you are familiar with the Center and its work over the years, I'll nonetheless take a moment to tell you about who we are and what we do. Uh, study centers like this one, and there are a few dozen scattered throughout the country, are interesting organizations. I know I frequently find myself answering the question, so what exactly do you do? I thought it useful to think of the center as a para-academic institution. We exist alongside the University of Florida, and while we're not affiliated with the university, we see our work as an effort to support the university in its work and enrich the intellectual community that takes shape around it. We are a distinctly Christian organization, as our name uh, makes clear. So this means that we are especially interested in bringing to bear the resources of the Christian intellectual tradition uh, to bear on what we believe are shared human questions. We are eager to foster thoughtful conversations about contemporary culture and to draw on a broad range of scholarship and criticism in order to address these questions and better understand the world we all share. We hope these efforts both serve the common good and promote human flourishing. Tonight's event reflects these commitments. Uh, this is uh, the first of a three-part lecture series titled Ivan Illich, Our Present Crisis and the Possibilities of a More Convivial Society. Uh, Ivan Illich was a brilliant, charismatic, and controversial Christian thinker of the 20th century whose wide-ranging and multifaceted work sheds a piercing light uh, on the conditions and quandaries of modern society. We think his work is vital, engaging, and worthy of renewed attention. Illich's work is clarifying and challenging precisely to the degree that it is impossible to pigeonhole him into one of the set of our rather unimaginative ideological categories. Uh, he's been called a Christian anarchist, a socialist, a libertarian, a humanist radical, and a radical traditionalist. Uh, tonight, uh, we will specifically consider his critique of contemporary technology or what he would call our tools and our systems. I've titled this lecture, Limits to Live By, Ivan Illich and the Search for a More Humane Technological Culture. I won't presume to speak for Illich tonight, nor do I claim to offer a definitive interpretation of Illich's work. Instead, I wanna present you with my reading of Illich in the hope that it will be useful to you and perhaps serve as an inducement for you to take up and read Illich yourself. You should know that this is our first attempt at conducting a Zoom webinar. Uh, Illich, as I think we'll see before the night is done, would have been less than pleased with the format. And certainly I can say that I'd much rather be able to see you all in person. However, one of the advantages of this format is that it allows us to include people spread far and wide. Uh, so we're glad to welcome those of you joining from far beyond the city of Gainesville. And that said, we have, I think, made all the appropriate sacrifices to the Zoom gods and hope that this goes off without a hitch. As it is, I trust that I'm not appearing to you in the guise of a cat, so I suppose that we must say at this point that that is a good start. And if you are momentarily puzzled by that comment, uh, please feel free to disregard. At the end of the talk, I will field any questions you may have. Uh, please feel free to use the Q&A feature to submit your questions uh, at any point during the talk but I probably won't take a look at them until we're done uh, or until I'm done with the talk. If you've been in on similar events, you know that you can upvote questions you find interesting and please feel free to do so. 
And so now with all of that out of the way, let us finally get uh, to Illich and the question of technology. Uh, in this first talk, I thought it might be good for me to provide a very brief sketch of Illich's life, uh, which I trust will add some texture and depth to our discussion of his thinking. Ivan Illich was born in Vienna, Austria in 1926. Uh, his father was Croatian and the descendant of an aristocratic family. His uh, grandfather still occupied an estate on an island off the coast of Dalmatia, a province of Croatia. Uh, Illich's mother was a Sephardic Jew who was born in Germany and had converted to the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, throughout his life, Illich would refer to himself as a wandering Jew and a Christian pilgrim. In 1932, Illich, his twin brothers, and his mother left Croatia as a result of a rising tide of anti-Jewish sentiment in Yugoslavia. His father stayed behind and Ivan never saw him again. Uh, they settled in Vienna, but in 1942, following his father's death, Illich's mother was reclassified as half-Jewish rather than half-Aryan, and consequently the family fled once more, uh, this time landing in Florence, Italy, where Illich would complete his schooling before going on to the Gregorian University in Rome and later the University of Salzburg, where he finished a PhD uh, in history. His thesis was written on the work of the renowned historian Arnold Toynbee. And while Illich has been identified in a multitude of ways, as for example, a philosopher, a social critic, uh, or a theologian, it seems fair to me to say that he remained fundamentally a historian. During this time, Illich was also ordained a priest in the Catholic Church, performing his first mass in the ancient Christian catacombs beneath the city of Rome. And it was evident to many within the Curia that Illich was ideally equipped for a long and successful career within the church hierarchy. He was, as one of his best interpreters, David Cayley has put it, apt in every way for a career as a prince of the church. He was a brilliant, devout, and charismatic scholar conversant in at least eight languages and descended from an aristocratic family with ancient ties to the church. But Illich wouldn't have it. Uh, despite being urged to remain in Rome by among others, Giovanni Montini, who later would become Pope Paul VI, Illich set off for Harvard where he would pursue postdoctoral work on the alchemical writings of the medieval theologian and philosopher, Albert the Great, best remembered today as the teacher of Thomas Aquinas. But that plan was also cut short when Illich visited an acquaintance of his grandfather's in New York City. And there he learned of the struggles of the recently arrived Puerto Rican immigrants. In 1951, he requested a post in a local parish and his request was immediately granted. Illich would spend the next five years laboring among the Puerto Rican community and becoming a most beloved priest. His success with that community led to an appointment as vice rector of the Catholic University in Puerto Rico and consequently uh, to Illich's first brush with mass compulsory schooling, the first modern institution to which Illich would turn his, his critical faculties. After falling out with the church hierarchy in Puerto Rico over the issue of candidates for political office supporting the legalization of contraceptives, Illich moved again, uh, this time to Cuernavaca, Mexico, which would become his base of operation for more than a decade. It is in Cuernavaca that Illich uh, became um, a prominent public figure. There in 1961, he established what would become known as the Center for International Documentation, or CDOC, from which Illich both continued his work training American clergy to work with Latin American immigrants 
and mounted a fierce opposition uh, to the rise of the development movement in both its American and ecclesial variations. Think of John F. Kennedy's Peace Corps and also the Pope's uh, simultaneous call for the North American churches to commit 10% of their clergy to Latin America. Illich's opposition to the paternalism implicit in both efforts was intense and passionate. Illich was diametrically opposed to what he understood as an effort to export and impose fundamentally destructive technocultural model, which would decimate local cultures and overlay yet another kind of poverty and dependence on the so-called underdeveloped world. Illich's work then came to broad public attention in 1971 uh, with the publishing of Deschooling Society, which probably remains his best known work. Uh, throughout the next several years, which he later called his pamphleteering phase, Illich wrote and lectured extensively. His essays were featured in opinion-forming journals and periodicals of the day, and he traveled around the world presenting his radical ideas about modern institutions. It was during this period that he produced most of his best-known books, not only Deschooling Society, but also Tools for Conviviality, Energy and Equity, and Medical Nemesis, which later became known as The Limits of Medicine, or Limits of Medicine. In 1976, however, Illich concluded that it was time to close down CDOC, uh, which had been a vibrant center of critical thought, attracting scholars and thinkers from across the globe. It was clear that the mood of radical possibility that characterized the late 60s and 70s had shifted, and Illich himself came to believe that his critical work had not gone far enough. Part of this realization involved his evolving understanding of the nature of the challenge posed by modern technology, to which we'll return shortly. For the rest of his life, Illich uh, would function as an itinerant scholar, uh, teaching in various uh, universities, mostly German and American universities, uh, most notably Penn State University, which remains home to a cadre of scholars closely connected with Illich. Penn State University Press is also publishing a series titled Ivan Illich, 21st Century Perspectives. Early in this new phase of his career, uh, Illich attempted to find a vantage point from which to achieve a deeper and more fundamental understanding of Western modernity. He sought this vantage point first by traveling through Southeast Asia in an effort to immerse himself in its languages and cultures but this appears to have been a too ambitious project even for Illich and decided, and he decided instead to find his vantage point in the 12th century. Recalling his decision to study the works of Albert the Great earlier in his life, it's evident that Illich's interest in the 12th century was longstanding. Now he would consciously seek to immerse himself in the 12th century in order to achieve the critical perspective he thought necessary to truly understand the assumptions and structures that characterize the late modern world. And concurrent with his turn toward the 12th century was his effort to understand how we experience our bodies, how the senses mediate experience, and how media technology specifically shapes the human sensorium. Books from this period include ABC, The Alphabetization of the Western Mind, co-written with Barry Sanders, and Illich's last book entitled In the Vineyard of the Text. In the late 1970s, a growth appeared on the side of Illich's face. For a variety of reasons, Illich chose not to have the growth treated. He came to see it as a burden or a cross that he should not avoid bearing, 
and as an opportunity to cultivate the art of suffering. The tumor continued to grow and eventually caused him a great deal of pain and discomfort. At one point, while traveling by plane, Illich found himself seated by a doctor who could not resist himself and began to palpate the tumor without even asking Illich's consent. In 2002, at the age of 76, Ivan Illich passed away while staying with his longtime friend, Barbara Duden, in Bremen, Germany. And I'll conclude this brief sketch of Illich's life with a few lines from David Cayley. Cayley uh, observed that Ivan Illich, Illich tried to think and to live his Christian faith in the thick of modern institutions. He pursued his vocation into the real world of schools and hospitals, risk screening and cyber text, and was often discreet about the source of his inspiration. This was his way of nakedly following the naked Christ, as he loved to quote from St. Jerome. Of all the names he was given, from philosopher to prophet, and by which he himself wished to be known, his friend. Friendship, hospitality, and independence, these would be enduring and central themes in Illich's work and hallmarks of his practice. And to these, uh, we will turn in a subsequent talk. Uh, tonight, however, I want to consider how Illich encourages us to understand technology, both in the industrial forms that characterize the world in which Illich made his mark as a social critic, but also in the distinctive digital form that he keenly perceived taking shape in the last decades of the 20th century. It's my estimation that Illich's critique offers us a unique perspective on technology and that it helps us see more clearly the challenges it poses to us and also the possibilities. Uh, to speak about a critic of technology, or as I often do, to speak publicly in that role is to invite uh, all manner of misunderstanding. Principally, it means subjecting oneself to accusations of being anti-technology or reactionary, of romanticizing the past, or of being, heaven forbid, a Luddite. Illich was none of these things, although it is true that he knew that the radical nature of his critique was often a function of its deep traditionalism of being grounded in another way of inhabiting the world that had been eclipsed by modern technological culture. I often have the impression that the more traditionally I speak, Illich once noted, the more radically alien I become. But I want to make clear at the outset that Illich's critical work was principally animated by a clear commitment to the good as he understood it, to a distinctive vision of human flourishing. It would be impossible to understand Illich without recognizing this fact. Yes, he was, as one oft-used blurb on his books puts it, a savage critic of industrial society. But his savage criticism was in the service of precious and noble human goods, which he was defending and championing. So with that in mind, I want to take, take a turn, which I think Illich would approve of, uh, to not the 12th, but the early 14th century, in the most difficult portion of perhaps the greatest and most famous poem in Western literature, Dante's Divine Comedy, on which Illich himself claims to have been fed as a kid, quite the diet. In the last canticle of the poem, known to us as Paradiso, the modern reader might be puzzled to encounter recurring references to the heavenly spheres. In the medieval cosmology, the earth was indeed at the center of the universe, and it was surrounded by a series of concentric spheres, each sphere solid and crystalline, 
bearing one of the planets which in the medieval period included the sun and the moon. Beyond the farthest sphere lay the realm of God. What is obvious to any reader of Dante is that he, along with his contemporaries, understood these spheres as mediators of angelic influence on worldly affairs. I won't bog us down with the details. This little bit has piqued your curiosity. Uh, the book to read is one of C.S. Lewis's scholarly works, The Discarded Image. For our purposes, it is enough to know that Illich, guided by his friend, the philosopher of technology, Carl Mitchum, discovered in this medieval conception of the cosmos an intriguing turn in how what we think of as technology was conceptualized. Remember that the word technology only began to take, in its, take on its modern sense in the 20th century. As late as the 19th century, a whole array of terms would be employed to describe the great variety of artifacts and systems and practices we think of simply as technology. In Illich's idiosyncratic view, this all began when it became necessary for theologians to theorize how angels, which are not material beings, could be said to influence the material realm. The heavenly spheres became the answer to this question and a new subset of efficient causality, a causa instrumentalis, was introduced into the classical Aristotelian theory of causality. In Illich's telling, this picture of the angels with the spheres as their instruments seeps into the popular imagination with two notable consequences. It legitimized tool use as a noble activity. It had been since classical antiquity, an activity understood as base and demeaning. It generated also the notion of the neutral instrument subservient to human manipulation. Illich would go on to argue that from that point until sometime in the 1980s, we lived in the age of instrumentality, in the age of tools. Beginning in the 1980s, although I'd be tempted to say earlier than that, uh, Illich believed that we had transitioned into the age of systems. The key difference being that in theory, an instrument exists apart from the human being and it's taken up by the human being. Uh, the human being uses it. And a system incorporates the human being into itself. In his later work, Illich claimed that his earlier books were inadequate because they failed to recognize this transformation. In my view, I don't think this invalidates the critical insights of his earlier work. And I'm going to honor Illich's insight into his own work by taking up in the last lecture the specific concerns that arise from the age of systems, as Illich called it. Tonight, however, I want us to listen to what Illich's earlier work on tools and institutions still has to teach us. Principally, I'd like us to consider the concepts of scale and limits, and then turn our attention to what Illich had to say about needs. Illich consistently challenged one of the key myths animating the development and adoption of modern technology, the myth of limitlessness. I call it a myth to suggest not simply that there is something untrue about it, but also to signal its cultural power. Our myths, whatever their status as truth claims, order our experience and sustain our values. According to the terms of this particular myth, limits are generally understood to be constraints and impediments. Happiness, progress, and satisfaction always lie in disregarding or overcoming limits 
be they physical or natural, cultural or ethical. Conversely, any talk of abiding by or honoring our limits becomes taboo. This is especially the case when growth enters into the equation alongside efficiency and speed as the key coordinates on the grid of modern values. Illich did not buy it. In Tools for Conviviality, he wrote, to formulate a theory about a future society, both very modern and not dominated by industry, it will be necessary to recognize natural scales and limits. Of course, it's true that making the case for limits is necessary, but also fraught with dangers. Who gets to decide what limits are appropriate and on what authority? How might they be enforced or otherwise achieve a measure of legitimacy? How might they be experienced, in Wendell Berry's words, not as confinements, but rather inducements to formal elaboration and elegance, to fullness of relationship and meaning? How do we keep from hampering the development of genuine goods or the unfolding of legitimate progress? These are, of course, in my view, largely political questions. And as Illich put it, we need procedures to ensure that controls over the tools of society are established and governed by political process rather than by decisions by experts. And it is needless to say that our present political culture taken as a whole seems hardly up to the challenge. Matters are further complicated as Illich later, Illich's later insights make clear by the way modern communication tools operate as a system and thus frustrate our efforts to simply assert our considered judgments. It's also important though to understand how modern technology relates to the myth of limitlessness. In one respect, the myth grows out of our use of technology. At the same time, however, the myth has abetted the advance of technology. There is in other words, a symbiotic, mutually reinforcing relationship between the two. I've come to believe in the possibility Excuse me, I come to believe in the possibility of throwing off all limits because modern technology lends the proposition a measure of plausibility. Because I adhere to the myth, I have no qualms about adopting technologies that promise to erase the limits that bind me. In this way, modern technology conveys an ideology of limitlessness by offering itself as a way of overcoming all kinds of limits, chiefly those that arise out of our being situated in the world as embodied creatures but cultural and moral boundaries also yield to modern technology. At every turn, we tend to choose tools, devices, techniques that allow us to act beyond or irrespective of the limitations of place and time that have historically conditioned the texture of human existence. And at the far end of this tendency, we encounter the transhumanist disdain for the human body, otherwise and unaffectionately designated as our meat sacks. For most of us though, the temptations are more subtle and more banal, and their sources are economic as well as technological. We are offered seemingly mundane conveniences, which promise to liberate us from the constraints of time and place. They may allow us to communicate instantaneously at any time or place, to exercise our agency remotely, to set a timer by speaking a command, to shop at 2 a.m. and have our purchases delivered before the sun sets again. But something is lost along the way. We begin to recognize that these limits, limits we may not even have thought to challenge or resent until a tool promised to overcome them for us, might also have functioned as boundaries protecting and shielding us. 
So how does Illich help us clarify our thinking about limits? Tools for Conviviality opens with a discussion of what Illich called two watersheds in medicine. The medical profession would be the subject of a later book, Medical Nemesis, but here in a few brief pages, Illich anticipates that later argument. In his view, medicine passed through two watersheds in the 20th century. Through the first lay significantly better outcomes and improved health through relatively basic developments and discoveries. Through the second, gains began to be reversed by the less obvious social costs of the professionalization of medicine. Illich opens with this discussion of medicine in order to illustrate a larger pattern he identifies throughout modern society. He observed that there came a point at which a tool or an institution reached a scale such that the putative goods uh, that it promised were undermined, gains were reversed, and the tools or institutions became a threat to society. In explaining the purpose of his book, Tools for Conviviality, for example, Illich proposed the concept of a multidimensional balance of human life, which can serve as a framework for evaluating man's relation to his tools. In each of several dimensions of this balance, Illich wrote, it's possible to identify a natural scale. And he goes on to add that when an enterprise grows beyond a certain point on this scale, it first frustrates the end for which it was originally designed and then rapidly becomes a threat to society itself. Tools for Conviviality ends up being in part Illich's attempt to lay a foundation for identifying these scales and clarifying the nature of the implied limits. Present research, he observed, is overwhelmingly concentrated in two directions, research and development for breakthroughs to the better production of better wares and general systems analysis concerned with protecting man for further consumption. But he argued, future research ought to lead in the opposite direction. Let us call it counterfoil research. Counterfoil research has two major tasks in Illich's view. To provide guidelines for detecting the incipient stages of the murderous logic in a tool, and to devise tools and tool systems that optimize the balance of life, thereby maximizing liberty for all. Already in deschooling society, Illich had written, we need research on the possible use of technology to create institutions which serve personal, creative, and autonomous interaction and the emergence of values which cannot be substantially controlled by technocrats. We need, he adds, counterfoil research to current futurology. Of course, you might imagine that it's much harder to get funding for counterfoil research, but it is not hard to imagine how useful it might be. At the very least, we would do well to have in our critical toolkit, the concept of a threshold beyond which the value of a tool or institution is jeopardized, beyond which, in fact, what had been good and useful becomes counterproductive and destructive. Illich allows for a great deal of latitude in how such an insight might be applied. It would be possible in his view for tools or institutions to have what he called an optimal, a tolerable, and a negative range. Furthermore, he acknowledged that different societies would have different goals and ends, and thus different ways of arriving at an appropriate techno-social configuration. The criteria of conviviality are to be considered as guidelines, Illich wrote. 
to a continuous process by which a society's members defend their liberty and not as a set of prescriptions which can be mechanically applied. But it was clear to Illich that we must acknowledge that such limits and scales exist. Written in the early 70s, Deschooling Society makes frequent use of an analogy to the American war in Vietnam. Illich refers to escalation as the American way of doing things, and he hardly means it as a compliment. So for example, in the closing lines of the first chapter of Tools for Conviviality, Illich writes, it has become fashionable to say that where science and technology have created problems, it is only more scientific understanding and better technology that can carry us past them. He goes on, the pooling of stores of information, the building up of a knowledge stock, the attempt to overwhelm the present problems by the production of more science is the ultimate attempt to solve a crisis by escalation. Solving a crisis by escalation seems not to have gone out of fashion. It signals, of course, a failure of imagination, but also an institutional imperative. What can an institution possibly offer you except more of itself? To take one example from our contemporary context, the one remedy for the problems it has unleashed that Facebook cannot contemplate is suspending operations. What is never questioned, whatever concessions to public pressure they might be willing to make, is the underlying ideology that connection mediated by the platform is an unalloyed good and that we always need more of it. What this ignores is the possibility that, as Illich argued, beyond a certain threshold, more, bigger, faster, simply becomes counterproductive and then destructive. It is a possibility to which we ought to be critically attuned. Along with the concept of limits and scale, there is another way Illich encourages us to reconsider our relationship to technology. Again, in Tools for Conviviality, Illich offered a simple proposition. People need new tools to work with rather than tools that work for them. People need new tools to work with rather than tools that work for them. He goes on to add that people need technology to make the most of the energy and imagination each has rather than more well-programmed energy slaves. Underlying this claim was Illich's belief that Western societies made a fundamental mistake in conceiving of machines as providing an alternative to slave labor. Between the high middle ages and the enlightenment, uh, Illich argued, the alchemic dream misled many otherwise authentic Western humanists. The illusion prevailed that the machine was a laboratory made homo nucleus or a humanoid creature and that it could do our labor instead of slaves. It is now time to correct this mistake and shake off the illusion that men are born to be slaveholders and that the only thing wrong in the past was that not all men could be equally so. Earlier, Illich had explained how for a hundred years we have tried to make machines work for men and to school men for a life in their service. Now it turns out, Illich observed, that machines do not work and that people cannot be schooled for a life at the service of machines. The hypothesis on which the experiment was built must now be discarded. That hypothesis, according to Illich, was that machines can indeed replace slaves. 
he added with, an, with a characteristically incisive turn of phrase, the evidence shows that, used for this purpose, machines enslave men. This claim that we need tools to work with rather than tools that work for us exemplifies what I read as Illich's concern for human dignity and autonomy properly understood. It is abundantly clear, as we noted at the outset, that Illich was not interested in an abstract or disinterested critique of technology or industrial civilization. He was a fierce advocate for a particular vision of human flourishing, which in his view, industrial society demolished. One aspect of this vision involved the ability of men and women to provide for themselves, to take responsibility for their health and learning, to be self-directed with regards to the work they valued and found meaningful. Progress should mean growing competence and self-care rather than growing dependence, Illich believed. He believed too that the liberation promised by modern industrial society amounted to a profound de-skilling of human beings and their consequent dependence upon institutions that increasingly dictated the terms of their worth relative to standards and criteria that had little or nothing to do with the good of the people they claimed to serve. The point resonates today in light of present discussions of automation. Illich understood that if we proceed on the assumption that we need better tools to work for us, we will eventually end up, quote, degraded to the status of mere consumers. Illich considers how, or invite you to consider how debates about the merits of automation and the potential of mass technological unemployment often play out. Among those who worry about such things, it appears that two solutions present themselves. Either universal basic income kicks in to make up for permanently lost wages, or else automation renders goods and services so cheap that lower wages are offset. In either case, individuals are presumed to be mere consumers whose well-being depends chiefly on their capacity to procure goods and experiences. A condition aptly summed up by Illich when he feared that we were traveling along a path that would lead, in yet another memorable formulation, to a, quote, further increase of useful things for useless people. By contrast, Illich argued that people feel joy as opposed to mere pleasure to the extent that their activities are creative. While the growth of tools beyond a certain point increases regimentation, dependence, exploitation, and impotence. In Illich's view, this approach fails to reckon with what people actually need. Yes, there are certain goods and services that people undoubtedly require, and these vary from one place to another. People, however, need more than this. According to Illich, they need, above all, the freedom to make the things among which they can live, to give shape to them according to their own tastes, and to put them to use in caring and about others. In our next talk, I'll develop that last line about caring for and about others. But for now, let us consider how Illich's ideals are at odds with a technological milieu in which we feel ourselves increasingly caught in networks designed to ostensibly empower us, but only by actually making us all the more dependent on their operations. This goes a long way toward explaining why, as the writer Colin Horgan put it not long ago, we've ended up living in a world we all chose, but that nobody seems to want. The consequences have been material and psychological. 
present institutional purposes which hallow industrial productivity at the expense of convivial effectiveness, Illich warned, are a major factor in the amorphousness and meaninglessness that plague contemporary society. Along these lines, and with another way of thinking about the necessity of limits, I think it is important to consider the emphasis Illich placed on the need for a relatively stable techno-social environment. People can change, but only within bounds, Illich argued. In contrast, he went on to say, the present industrial system is dynamically unstable. It is organized for indefinite expansion and the concurrent unlimited creation of new needs, which in an industrial environment soon become basic necessities. Consequently, Illich observed, increasing manipulation of man becomes necessary to overcome the resistance of his vital equilibrium to the dynamic of growing industries. And here you'll note the thread that unites his early work. It takes the form of educational, medical, and administrative therapies. Education turns out competitive consumers. Medicine keeps them alive in the engineered environment they have come to require. Bureaucracy reflects the necessity of exercising social control over people to do meaningless work. But there was more. The parallel increase in the cost of the defense of new levels of privilege through military, police, and insurance measures reflects the fact that in a consumer society, there are inevitably two kinds of slaves, the prisoner of addiction and the prisoner of envy. Illich's response to this was his call for convivial tools or tools which give each person who uses them the greatest opportunity to enrich the environment with the fruits of his or her vision. In any society, Illich claimed, as conviviality is reduced below a certain level, no amount of industrial productivity can effectively satisfy the needs it creates among society's members. And this is because of a fundamental paradox in consumer society. Consumer society excels at generating and ostensibly satisfying ever more trivial needs while simultaneously eviscerating our capacity to satisfy our deepest and most pressing needs. This brings us finally to Illich's exploration of the sources of what we might think of as, from his perspective, our manufactured neediness. It is not, of course, that Illich denied that human beings have needs. It was that, from his point of view, many of the needs we think we have are, in fact, deliberately cultivated in us by a techno-economic institutional order that excels at nothing so much as the generation of dependent consumers. So for example, we may very well have a need to learn, but why exactly has that need been transmuted into the need for schooling? In the opening of Deschooling Society, Illich claims that the hidden curriculum of schooling is dependency on the institution of the school. The pupil, Illich writes, is thereby schooled to confuse teaching with learning, grade advancement with education, a diploma with competence, and fluency with the ability to say something new. The student's imagination, Illich continued, is schooled to accept service in place of value. Medical treatment is mistaken for healthcare, social work for the improvement of community life, police protection for safety, military poise for national security, the rat race for productive work. 
Lichtenstein explains how he will show that the institutionalization of values leads inevitably to physical pollution, social polarization, and psychological impotence. Three dimensions in a process of global degradation and modernized misery. Illich goes on to write about how this process of degradation is accelerated when non-material needs are transformed into demands for commodities, when health, education, personal mobility, welfare, or psychological healing are defined as a result of services or treatments. About 30 years before Illich was writing in this vein, the French thinker Simone Weil anticipating the rebuilding of French society after the Nazi occupation, articulated the case for the importance of understanding the link between human rights, human obligations, and human needs. Our obligations toward our fellow human beings, they argued, correspond to the list of such human needs as are vital, analogous to hunger. Some of these needs are physical, of course, housing, clothing, security, etc. But they identified another set of needs, which she described as having to do not with the quote physical side of life, but with what she calls its moral side. The non-physical needs form, as she put it, a necessary condition of our life on this earth. In her view, if these needs are not satisfied, we fall little by little into a state more or less resembling death. And while she acknowledges that these needs are much more difficult to recognize and to enumerate than are the needs of the body, she believes everyone recognizes they exist. As she suggests, everyone knows there are forms of cruelty which can injure a man's life without injuring his body. Bay goes on to call for more investigation into what these vital needs might be. I mentioned Bay's argument here because it makes Illich's discussion of manufactured needs all the more urgent. If they is right about the vital importance of what she calls moral needs or the needs of the soul, then what Illich identifies is, of course, a pernicious and perverse hijacking of these needs. Pernicious because of the transmutation of vital non-physical needs into the need for commodities. Perverse because the nature of the commodification is such that these vital needs are never satisfied. Indeed, having been institutionalized along the lines that Illich identifies, they must be forever perpetuated so as to justify the ongoing existence of the institution that supplies them. Consider for a moment a more concrete and contemporary example. Why does anyone need a ring camera? Or better, whose interests are best served by a ring front porch camera? The most obvious answer is Amazon. If there's a problem that Ring is designed to solve, it is the problem of packages being stolen from people's front porches, a problem that arises when our consumption is increasingly funneled through Amazon. But of course, Ring presents itself as more than just the surveillance arm of a multi-billion dollar corporation deployed to your front door. It hijacks the human need for security or safety and transmutes it into a need for what Ring supplies. It is chiefly the needs of Amazon that are being met, particularly given the way that Ring allows Amazon to also profit from partnerships with police departments. And as Illich would have readily predicted, this dependence on a corporate product comes at the additional cost of alienating neighbors, eroding social trust, and replacing mutual interdependence with a state of perpetual suspicion. By contrast, 
Illich wrote that society must be reconstructed to enlarge the contribution of autonomous individuals and primary groups to the total effectiveness of a new system of production designed to satisfy the human needs which it also determines. In other words, individuals and groups ought to be able to determine their needs rather than have their needs determined or manufactured for them. But as we have already seen, Illich argued that the institutions of industrial society do just the opposite. As the power of machines increases, the role of persons more and more decreases to that of mere consumers. Nowhere is this reduction of the person to the status of mere consumer more evident than in the ruthless efficiency of Amazon's near total enclosure of our lives within a network of self-perpetuating and automated consumption. One with which we come to increasingly, one within which we come to increasingly function as a mere node rather than the autonomous consumer we imagine ourselves to be. But Illich saw in our dependence on institutions that dictate to us the nature of our neediness more than just a failure of personal autonomy and self-realization. The question of justice was also at stake. At present, Illich observed, people tend to relinquish the task of envisaging the future of a, to a professional elite. They transfer power to politicians who promise to build up the machinery to deliver this future. They accept a growing range of power levels in society when inequality is needed to maintain high outputs. Political institutions themselves become draft mechanisms to press people into complicity with output goals. What is right comes to be subordinated to what is good for institutions. Justice is debased to mean the equal distribution of institutional wares. Illich is here suggesting the existence of a counterfeit form of justice, one which we might gloss as a matter of becoming equally dependent on institutions and their commodities. The contemporary example that leaps to mind is the belief in some quarters that the problem with facial recognition technology is simply that it seems in its present iteration to be especially biased against people of color, as if the tool would be just and good as soon as it was calibrated so that people of color were equally, equally legible to its gaze without acknowledging the implicit danger in such legibility given the present structures of the American justice system. In other words, equal access to fundamentally degrading institutions and their products is not justice. Elsewhere in Tools for Conviviality, Illich wrote about the three distinct values, survival, justice, and self-defined work, which were, in his view, fundamental to any convivial society however different one such society might be from another in practice, institutions, or rationale. He went on to explain, the conditions for survival are necessary but not sufficient to ensure justice. People can survive in prison. The conditions for the just distribution of industrial outputs are necessary but not sufficient to promote convivial production. People can be equally enslaved by their tools. A post-industrial society must and can be so constructed that no, one's no one person's ability to express him or herself in work will require as a condition the enforced labor or the enforced learning or the enforced consumption of another. 
Illich argued that what he calls a convivial society, which we can think of simply as a distinctly Illichian way of speaking about a good society, involves not equal access to commodities, however broadly we conceive of them, but something more. This something more, as we see in the paragraph just quoted, Illich ties very closely to work, work that is free, creative, and meaningful. In this regard, Illich yet again recalls Simone Weil, who believed that all the problems of technology and economy should be formulated functionally by conceiving of the best possible condition for the worker. It would be worth exploring how Weil and Illich each conceive of work as a condition of human flourishing. It is enough for my purposes here to note that they both understand that a good society would furnish its citizens with more than just a steady stream of endless commodities and diversions. So with that, I want to draw my comments to a close. Tonight, I wanted principally to introduce Illich to you, although some of you did not require such an introduction, and to put before us these critical concepts and frameworks from Illich's early work. I don't think there is a straight line from my discussion to any obvious set of solutions and programs of action, but I do think we are in a better position to think critically about our common challenges in conversation with Illich.